for a new series, Wisdom. The story I'm going to tell you today is like when you see a film or a book and you know who the villain is or you know what's happening, but the people in the story don't. You've, you've had some of those books? And sometimes you're sitting there thinking, no, no, don't go there. That person is the villain. Been there? Done that? Well, today we are going to look at the book of Job. And we're a little bit like that because we know what Job didn't know. We know what Job and his friends didn't know. And so we have the... What, what, what we call the omniscience, if you like, in this story. We are the all-knowing ones in the story about what's behind the scenes. And so the story of Job is like a mystery story when we know stuff that Job didn't do it. And in this story, there's a lot of stuff that Job didn't know. There's stuff that God knew about Job that Job probably didn't know about himself. And then there's Job's friends, if you can call them friends. And it's about what they didn't know about God and the unknowable. And we are also privileged to know what God thought about Job. So that's what we know going into the story. And the story unfolds uh, with an interesting statement that God knew he could trust Job. I like that. God knew he could trust Job. But did Job know he could trust God? So this story introduces us to an awful challenge, a terrible challenge of silence. Silence from God or perceived silence from God is a terrible challenge for us. Even waiting is a challenge for us. But silence, when it seems that God is silent, it's a big challenge, especially for those who know God. So let me tell you a little bit about the story, and I'm not going to stay a lot on the story. And that scene at the beginning, you need to come to a series that we're running later on the year called Supernatural. So I'm not really going there today, because otherwise that would take up all my time. The story is of a rich, very rich, very rich, prosperous man, innocent and righteous, a God-lover, a fearer of God, a uh, person who God looked down, and uh, he thought, wow, I like this man. And there was this time when there was a conference in the heavens, and all of the heavenly creatures came, and God says to the in the heavenly council, hey, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He's blameless, upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Can you imagine that coming out of God's mouth about you or me? But it came out of God's mouth about Job. Ah, there was a reply, though, from Satan. And it says, does God fear you for nothing? Does God only, uh, does Job, sorry, does Job fear God for nothing? Does Job fear God for nothing? Job's only out there to get what he can from God. 
He's your favorite, Satan says to God. You've given him so much. Look at his life. I guarantee, says Satan, from the heavenly council to job to God. I guarantee, I wager, I bet. You know what they are? That his that if his life is struck with any form of loss, he will curse God. He's only there to get what he can get out of God. So do you know what? God entered the wager or the bet. You didn't know that, did you? He entered the wager. And he entered this with Satan and he gave him limited permission to touch his life. And guess what? You can read all about it in Job chapter 1. Job lost everything. And he had everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his income, his possessions, his servants. And he lost his sons and his daughters. He lost everything. And he joined the world of the poor. And in chapter 1 of verse 21, it says, In all this, Job did not sin. You got that? In all this, Job did not sin. Job had joined the world of the poor or the unfortunate However, there's another heavenly council, chapter 2, and here they all up in heaven again, and uh, God is there saying, hey, Job still maintains his integrity. Let's come up now. We've got some text, sorry. So he still maintains his integrity, though you set up to ruin him without reason. So Satan argues and said, ah. But if you touch his body, if he physically suffers, he will curse you. So again, permission's given for Satan to touch his life. And uh, the wager is there. And so Job now suffers a serious physical complaint. We're not really sure what it is but it's bad. And not only has he lost everything, he's now sitting in the ashes with this terrible skin disease. And he becomes part of the question, why do the innocent suffer? You got that? Not only has he entered the world of the poor, he's also entered the world of why do the innocent suffer? But there's bigger questions behind this, bigger questions that this book unfolds for us. And uh, the big question is, do we only worship God to get what we can from God? That's one question. But the question even behind that, is God really a God of justice? You see, in our world, we often read of people who go to court to get justice. But really, they're going to court to get vindication. Would that be true? They want the person who hurt them to get it, to get a jail sentence. Most people are wanting vindication, judgment. They're wanting to see some kind of punishment. And so the question is, is God God of justice? 
Why do the innocent suffer? And so Job has joined this world. And when we look at our world today, just a little snapshot, because we sit here, we're warm, we've got heating on, we've got clothes, we probably had choice, we've probably had a shower this morning. Most of us who wanted to probably have eaten. In the last 24 hours, at least we've eaten. And we've been okay. We've probably had a lot of choice. We had a bed to sleep in. True? We're fortunate. Uh, most of us live on more than $30 a day. But 85% of the world live on less than $30 a day. 85%. Of those, 66% live on less than $10, a third of them. That's hard to grasp. And then 10% of these live in extreme poverty. Where is God's justice? Why do the innocent suffer? Whose fault is it? Refugees, victims of war, victims of slavery, victims of abuse, victims of oppression. Whose fault is it? In our world today, we have people who are born into fortune, right? And we have people who are born into misfortune. But most churches have never developed a theology of misfortune. And so when bad things happen, when the roller coaster of life hits us and things are up and down, we are not adequately prepared to cope with misfortune. Just a little bit of a side on the problem of evil. Now, I'm distinguishing between evil and misfortune and fortune. Evil is a reality, okay? Because God created us free beings who could live and make choices, and because humanity chose to live according to their opinions and what they believed and denied what God wanted them to do, sin and evil and evil structures entered this world. And we're victims of that. Every single person who is born into this world is a victim of some evil structure. We try to do the best we can, but there's still problems. However, in some places, it's, more, it's worse than others. So there are wicked people in this world. There are evil people. There are tyrants, oppressors, slave traders, traders, abusers, extortionists. There's people there who just blatantly do evil and exploit the human condition. And most of them prosper. Most of them get wealthy on evil. But there's also people who are born into this world through no fault of their own into worlds of fortune. We are the fortunate, the ones who are here today, okay? I was able to have an education. I was able to be looked after by a government if I got into difficulties. That's the bottom line scenario, okay? There are many more people who are born into misfortune. Now, in the fortunate world, we are all sinners. In the misfortunate world, we're all sinners. But in the fortunate world, there are a whole lot of wicked people. And in the unfortunate world, 
There's a lot of evil people, gangs and rival gangs, trying to get out an existence and exploitation. So it happens in both worlds, okay? That's evil. But I want to talk about the victims, the unfortunate. I would like us to stop using the word blessing for fortunate, okay? I would like us to say we're privileged. Because as soon as we say we are blessed with all the stuff we have, we are not really thinking about our Christian brothers and sisters who probably are doing it much worse than us with much less in refugee camps, in prisons, being exploited. So let's use bless for the right word. Is okay for the right stuff? Yes, let's use privileged or fortunate. And I want to, because I believe that's what the book of Job is about as we go there. So I want to go to the story of Job and his friends. He had some friends. He goes on a journey. Job goes on a journey and he's suffering. At first, his friends sit there in silence. I think the silence lasted seven days. And this presence of friends without words, presence without words, was quite comforting. Because often, we just don't know what to say. But it's jolly good to turn up, even if you don't know what to say. So Job interrupts the silence with a very legitimate complaint. It's okay. He lets forth, and he has this, what we call a lament, a groan, a moan, a complaint. And he says, what has happened? Where is my God? And he actually cursed the day he was born. He did not curse God. And so Job has all these speeches. And look, it's pretty heavy poetry. It's very hard to read. I'll acknowledge that. Okay, it's pretty hard. Just listen to it from the message or something. But it's worth a read. And he goes up and down and all over the place. Sometimes he's got faith and confidence and sometimes he's just there in a miserable heap. This is our friend Job. And he has joined the world of the misfortunate. And he goes from statements of trust and hope and despair and demand. His theological framework, the way he thinks about God, has not prepared him for this. The way he thinks about God hasn't prepared him. He knows he's a sinner. That's not his issue. But he's not a wicked man. He's not an evil man. He knows he's innocent. He knows that God must answer him. How about that? He knows that God must answer him. He comes to realize the folly of his friends because Job has a blurt out, ooh, like this, spews it all over them, and it is. And then his friends say, oh, Job, you must have sinned badly. If you repent, it will be good again. And so Job's, uh, Job goes back, but I haven't. I can't repent. And so he spews it, and this goes backwards and forwards. And do you know what? The friends get angrier 
and angrier because they are tied into their opinion of God. And their opinion of God hinders them from being able to comfort and know the truth. So they kept saying to Job, they beg him, they yell at him, they abuse him, the words just keep coming and coming and coming, Job, repent. Job says, I haven't sinned. God knows I haven't sinned. And I think Job actually stops listening to them, but every time he stops, they start up again. Okay, So he stops listening. But Job, his messages change, and he goes on to a different journey. And in his journey, he starts to understand the problem of injustice. He starts to understand that he has joined the world of the poor and the unfortunate and the suffering, and they don't have a voice in his world. And he starts to be the voice for them. But he still has his own problems, and he still demands from God, and he's still waiting for God, and he's still overwhelmed. So the truth of the friends was God rewards the righteous. You got that? That's their truth. God rewards the righteous and curses the unrighteous. Job has lost everything. He's cursed, therefore he is wicked, and the way back is to repent. Now that's hard. That's heavy. They're so tied into what they think that they've lost grace, mercy, compassion. And Job goes into this inward journey. He enters the terrible presence of the seemingly silence of God. He speaks and changes happen. He demands answers. And finally, right at the end of the book, it's a long book, and it's all in poetry. It's all in Hebrew poetry, and it's all hard to read. But finally, he keeps quiet, <laughs> and God speaks. And God, in his wisdom, takes him on a virtual tour of the universe. So he says, sit back, Job, put on your 3D glasses or your special glasses, and I'm going to take you into the universe. And he, if you like, sees Job as a dot on the canvas of the universe, and he starts painting a picture. And he says, Job, where were you when I created light and darkness? Where were you when I created this and did this? Were you there? Could you do that? And he just shows the vast cosmic bigness of the world. And Job is silenced. And he says, I feel insignificant. This is his response. I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once and I have no answer. Twice, but I speak no more. In other words, I'm going to shut up, keep quiet. I'm going to shut my mouth because... I've spoken of things I haven't got a clue about. But this is the important thing here. Job feels insignificant. That's all it has done. The cosmic display of God's greatness, the virtual tour of the universe, just left him feeling insignificant. And God's not happy with that kind of response. 
God does not want us to feel insignificant and unworthy. He doesn't want that kind of relationship. That's not what he wants. So he wasn't going to leave Job feeling, poor little me, God is so big. I am a worm. That's some of the language you use. I am nothing. I'm unworthy. I'm significant. God didn't leave him there. God did not leave him there. There's another speech from God. But before he does this speech, it's quite interesting. He says to Job, Job, would you like my job? God offered Job his job. He says, you come up here and see if you can manage this big, massive, complicated world. See if you can handle all of the injustices in this world where men and women have freedoms. And he uses two illustrations to go on. And he does a story of two creatures Two probably um, unknown creatures. Some think they're crocodiles and rhinoceroses. The bee, Hemoth. And he says, look at him. He's huge. He's not evil. But he's dangerous. You can't tame him. You can't go out and catch him on a hook, line and sinker. He's big. He's not evil but he's dangerous. And then there's the next picture of another creature. And he says the same, look at him, look at him. Everyone's scared stiff of him, but he's not evil. But he's dangerous. So Job, can you do my job? And finally, Job repents. Not from wickedness, not from his sins, but from his lack of knowing. I didn't know. He said, my ears have heard so much about you. It's true of us, isn't it? We've heard and heard and heard so much, and we sing so much. But now my eyes have seen. I see that this is a very complicated, it is a world that you have created and we have complicated, and you are a just God. You are a good God, and you see the end from the beginning, and the trouble is we don't know very much about who you are. So Job says, my ears have heard, my eyes have seen, I despise myself, I repent from my unknowing. I repent in dust and ashes. There's a startling difference about the kind of repentance that he felt than from the repentance caught to uh, from his friends. I've just read a book just recently from the book club that I go to. It's a true story of a woman who ended up on a short-term trip to Burundi and stayed there the rest of her life, basically. And uh, she ended up ministering to orphans and people in refugee camps. And one day, as she was out on a feeding program, I don't know how she did this day after day. My heart just breaks thinking of it. With the poverty, the war, the victims of war, people escaping, the refugees, people not having enough to eat. And she saw a very, very old man, I think he was 80 plus, just sitting there in a heap of rags, she was just packing up and she, for some reason enough, they had food left over. 
And she went back to this man and fed him. And this is what he said. And probably this is all I'll remember from the story. I didn't realize that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. You got that? The unfortunate sitting there teaching me the fortunate, the truth. Do I serve God for nothing? I didn't realize that Jesus was all I needed until Jesus was all I had. God is on the side of the unfortunate, the innocent, the silent majority who have no voice but our voice. Job has learned of God's preference to the poor. Jesus said in Luke 6.20, looking at his disciples, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Those Jesus came for were not the healthy, that is, those who feel no need for God, but the sick, those who know they need God. Good news for the poor, he said, the prisoners, the lame, the sick, the outcast. This is where God wants our hearts to be. God's silence was broken. And Jesus entered our world and he broke into our silence and our unknowing. And this was the mandate of Jesus. Jesus stood for his first public message in Capernaum and he spoke these words which were prophesied. He spoke these words to the people there. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus because he has anointed me, Jesus, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, did God give an answer of why the innocent suffer? It's a problem because of the freedoms in this world. But he calls us to identify with those who suffer and to be their voice. Job's journey moved from suffering to feeling solidarity with the innocent. But the other question, is God just? Can I trust God to do the right thing? Israel actually went into exile because they did not do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before their God. And Jesus repeated those words from the prophets in Matthew 23, 23. He said, you people, you religious people, he said, you do these things. us and make us a people who know what it is to 
do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God.